Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me for our first proper episode back is Phoebe Watson. Hello. Uh, I said proper because if everything has gone correctly and smoothly. Which we hope it has. Which we hope it has. I haven't had a chance to listen back to the audio yet, but I believe I should be posting, before this episode, I, I plan to post a talk that I gave at our U2000 Summer Festival. And yeah, so I'm looking forward to sharing that. I feel like there's a couple of people who have asked for it and it's very exciting to be able to share that with people. But I also don't consider it a proper Risky Enchantment episode. It's not a topic I'd have thought about doing for Risky Enchantment. So hopefully if you've listened to it, you've enjoyed it and found it relevant and good, but yeah. And if you haven't listened to it yet, and we're thinking about it, it was excellent, you should do so. (laughs) Thank you very much, Phoebe. Uh, So obviously, like I said, that will be technically our first episode back, but this is the return to form, normal risking enchantment discussion. We're even talking about books. We're talking about books and we're back in gear. So yeah, I mean, I'm looking back over the summer and I'm thinking of all of the very productive, serious plans that we laid out Mm -hmm. that we swore (laughs) up and down, I believe. I haven't even had the courage to listen to the last episode before the summer um, because I'm certain in it I said, like, I'm definitely going to get so prepared. Uh, Yeah, you did. And as always, is always the case. I don't know why I bother even saying things like that because it's never true. Uh, I have to say, we've had a wonderful summer. We're still continuing to have a wonderful summer. There's still plans on the horizon. There's still a summery feel in the air. We've had, we had a very wet July. So the fact that we've got some good weather now feels like the return of summer, even if it's later in the year. Uh, But the sunshine is back at least temporarily. Yes. Even amid the rain. (laughs) Uh, But Phoebe and I have had a wonderful summer, so I I can't say I regret uh, not getting ahead of myself at all. Um, We've essentially done what we're telling everybody else about in this, minus some of the going away parts. Yeah, very helpfully, this episode is going to be about holidays. Still. Uh, Still. So I definitely feel like you and I have really properly had a holiday. It actually feels like... We've both done some traveling, but it's more been at home with our friends. And in in that way, it actually feels like the closest I've felt to being, you know, a kid on holidays, like the summer holidays. That great C.S. Lewis line about like that tingling, excited, excited feeling when you wake up on the first day of, of term being over and the holidays have begun. When there's like freedom to make random plans like mm-hmm. a day in advance and go off and do crazy things. Yeah. So it's been lovely, but I'm, I am very excited to be back. I'm looking forward to recording some more podcasts and uh, getting back into the swing of this. Yeah, but it's, it's been a wonderful time. But thank you very much for coming back to listen if you're a regular listener and welcome to all of our new, new listeners. Hopefully there'll be at least a few. But yeah, I guess to turn to our topic at hand, as we mentioned, we're going to be talking about holidays and in some ways specifically about the ways that holidays 
offer us opportunities for charity and virtue in how we relate to, in some cases, the family that you're going on a holiday with or just the friends or the people who you are traveling with. And we're going to be talking about two books in particular. One is actually, in some ways, it's a very nice continuation on from our last episode because we referenced it in that episode before the summer, which is The Enchanted April. And both books have months in the title and they're very fitting. So this this works really well. So we're going to be talking about The Enchanted April as well as another book about holidays, which is called The Fortnight in September. Bookending the holiday year. Exactly. So yeah, it's really wonderful. I, I will say that I definitely started the, the idea of this episode with actually The Fortnight in September. And then Phoebe pointed out how it really also gives a sort of maybe even like the opposite side of the coin to The Enchanted April. So it was a nice opportunity to bring that back in. But I read The Fortnight in September. It was one of those really fortuitous moments. You know, my reading list is such a, is stacked so high and people give me amazing books and I'm so guilty of like taking ages to get around to any book that I'm given. Uh, but we were in a charity shop and I saw it as, and it, it was in one of those gorgeous Persephone book editions with the illustrations on the cover. I love the gray covers that the, that publishing house has, but I love the illustrated covers. And I, I pretty much picked it up. I looked at it. I recognized the name R.C. Sheriff from the play uh, Journey's End, which I haven't read, but has been on my to read list. <laughs> uh, and I had also recently been I think I'd even bought or maybe I was thinking of buying another of his books for a friend because I'd seen a review of it which is a science fiction book like he really covers a broad range of genres but I knew him to be a writer that I was interested in and so I saw this beautiful edition of a writer that I knew something about and I was like I'll just pick it up and helpfully I think I got it in the autumn and if it's got the words September in the title I was like well I better read it in the autumn and so unusual for you, you essentially bought it at random and read it straight away. Yeah, I can't tell you how unusual that is for me, but I read it and loved it. I just started recommending it to as many people as possible. I think it's a truly beautiful book. It's such a tender, loving portrait of a family. And it's it's a very small little window into a family. It's about them going on a two-week holiday, uh, which they take at the start of September every year. And it's so much about the little rituals and the little moments of like just the ebbs and flows. And there are incidents that happen in the book, but the stakes are not particularly high. I feel like you care so much about the characters that those small moments do matter to you as you're reading them. It's not to say that, oh, nothing interesting happens in the book. On the contrary, it gets you to love these people so quickly that even the little small moments of ups and downs are things that you actually care about reading, but that it is a very, it's not about like plot twists or high stakes or big dramas. It really is a portrait of life in its most and I mean this like it gives a dignity to the most humdrum mundane life yeah like they're the most ordinary people Mm. they live very ordinary lives in the suburbs and they go on the same holiday to the seaside Mm. every year Mm. and you know they're taking the train down they're joining all the other holiday makers they're not going anywhere unusual yeah the 
boarding house that they stay in is very ordinary. And it's the same one that they've been in for 20 years. Since the honeymoon. Yeah. (laughs) And yet there's also this like undercurrent, which I think really helps you to care about the book, which is the sense that it could all go pear-shaped if they weren't acting in virtue. Mm, You know? Like... The whole holiday could be ruined by a big argument. Mm, yeah. And like, how true is that? That like, yeah, the the balance of our daily lives is in many ways always on, on a knife's edge that you can just act without love and act without charity and hurt the people that mean the most to you. And I'm sure there would be a great story of like, and redeeming it. And I've often thought of when I've been on, I don't know, holidays or occasions where it feels like it's very important for us all to enjoy it. And then something bad has happened or you've had a fight with someone and you think, oh, this has spoiled the whole thing. And actually, when you look back and you get some space, that thing often recedes and the good often remains. Not always, but I think it is possible to have that happen. But yeah, that you're you're still getting that insight into the like very careful dance of respect and thinking about each other and being mindful and also even like the little Im- impatiences and the irritations and the secret feelings of the, the of each person and how how this holiday is a project in uh, the family coming together and being on board with this one project which is to enjoy ourselves on holiday yeah and it's all that like family tensions and fact like the dynamics of the family and how they relate to each other mm-hmm. and how they love each other in that yeah and yeah they've really taken the time to know each other's foibles mm-hmm. and to build each other up around yeah. that but there's also a great sense of maybe the English reserve mm-hmm. of like the privacy even in that public space as well yeah that as a family, there's things they don't necessarily talk about. Mm. They don't share all of their emotions on everything. Yeah. But yet they manage to even more have that respect for each other. Yeah. Um, and just that decency to each other. A hundred percent. I think one of the other really interesting things about the book is that the first half of the book is essentially them preparing to go. Um, And just like that first evening and first day and you get a sense into the whole family structure as they are at home before they go on holidays. Yeah, there's a beautiful sense of of ritual about the whole thing. And I think it's interesting because it comes from an era in which, you know, holidays were not the kind of extravagant things that most of us might even consider fairly normal now. That like a trip to the seaside would be your big trip of the whole year. Yeah, they're still a luxury. Like 100%. there's a point at, like where she's like, "Oh, how lucky that I get a holiday," mm-hmm. and pitying the person who doesn't. Exactly, but that like yeah, that in some ways to us now, they, they it seems quite meager in some mm-hmm. ways as well. Yeah, but that because of this, because they do the same thing every year, and because it's like it, it's part of this ritual of the family and all of these little moments and like you said the first it's I think it's the first third of the whole book only gets them as far as being on the (laughs) holiday but the the that third is covered with both this thing that they call the going away eve Mm -hmm. uh, I love that I mean I just when I read that I just felt like 
I, I really it really resonated with my experience of my dad and how he and like he always talks about Thursday being the best day of the week because he could look forward to it being Friday for it to be the end of the week for it to be the weekend you know like like that gradually pulling forward of when your anticipation starts for something <laughs> um but that like yeah it just felt yeah it to me it felt like something I really resonated with and it was such a beautiful representation of family life and like those little moments of like what makes it a success that dance between actually enjoying it but also being scared that you mightn't enjoy it and that overcorrection to be maybe too gregarious about it or too precious about it that like it can be almost hard to enter into the spirit of it but then allowing the spirit of it to take you with it I feel like a lot of us might feel that maybe with Christmas traditions that we have or Mm, birthday traditions you know that like if you as a kid love going to the carol service and as you get older and maybe some of your family just don't have the same resonance with it as you and you're like no we have to go to the carol service what are you talking about we're decorating the tree right exactly yeah and so yeah these little uh, rituals that we cultivate and I love the way they have this thing called marching orders which is after dinner on the first Mm -hmm. night and they all get assigned their little tasks of how to get the house ready to leave it's just so charming to me yeah I think we're going to read you a couple of quotes Mm -hmm. from just that evening yeah um just tying back into what you were saying about making a success the mother before like the afternoon beforehand is worrying about the rain and Mm sad that it's going to make like the going away eve not as exciting um but the rain eases and it says supper had been a great success at first perhaps they were all a little too consciously eager to make it an occasion as if they half feared that the charm of the evening might have sped with the passing of another year but gradually they had warmed up to it and the spirit of past going away evenings was magically recaptured wonderful and i love that they can't, like, they're fearing that it's lost. Mm-hmm. And they could dive into that fear. Yeah. But instead, by just being charitable to each other and putting a little bit more effort into it, yeah. they're able to recapture it almost by forgetting it. Yeah. And I think that's so fitting. And I think, I honestly think this might be one of my favorite sections in the whole book, if not my favorite, where it talks about. Mr. Stevens, the the father of the house, and how he has kind of instigated this ability to cultivate these moments, almost kind of subconsciously. It says, Mr. Stevens was not an unduly sentimental man, no more so probably than the average. It was only that by instinct he had taught himself to relieve the drabness of his days by painting red letters to all that could possibly bear the title. It was entirely by instinct that he did this, entirely subconsciously, for he would have been the last to regard his life as drab. It would be more just, perhaps, to say that he had the gift of establishing domestic occasions, which do so much to strengthen the links of a home. Something almost in the nature of of a ritual surrounded these special days, a ritual that bound the family together in thought and deed. Christmas Eve, Whit Monday... August bank holiday and family birthdays were painted with letters of carefree flamboyant scarlet. New Year's Eve and going away Eve had titles of a more delicate meditative red, the former because of its wistful plea to strengthen fading hopes, 
the latter because it had heralded the yearly release of emotions which Mr. Stevens neither wished nor sought to analyse or understand. Which I just think that's such an amazing description of like the little efforts that go into family life. Mm. And then it the next it goes on to say this next bit, which I think so wonderfully encapsulates why these holidays are important. It says, The man on his holidays becomes the man he might have been, the man he could have been, had things worked out a little differently. All men are created equal on their holidays. All are free to dream their castles without thought of expense or skill of architect. Dreams based on such a delicate fabric must be nursed with reverence and held away from the crude light of tomorrow week. I love it. There's always through the book this threat of like tomorrow week when mm-hmm. they have to come back to the humdrum. And as it as it gets faster and faster, it has all of these great descriptions of how time works when you're on holidays and how it, it slows or it gets faster or yeah flicks by or becomes a, a repetition yeah it's yeah. amazing but yeah there's such beauty in that creation of domesticity mm-hmm. and i love that like painting red flags over the days yeah that you're like this is a day that is free for enjoyment we're going to actually have rituals about it and have an established set of what we do to celebrate it yeah And how important that is for the human soul that like actually these holidays are so instructive for how we live our lives. Yeah, and to jump to Chesterton, just Mm. to back up the point with another holiday quote. Because of course Chesterton has written about going on holidays. It's such a Chesterton thing to write about, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Now a holiday has no connection with using a man either by beating or feeding him. When you give a man a holiday, you give him back his body and soul. It is quite possible you may be doing him an injury, though he seldom thinks so. But that does not affect the question for those to whom a holiday is holy. Immortality is the great holiday, and a holiday, like the immortality in the old theologies, is a double-edged privilege. But wherever it is genuine, it is simply the restoration and completion of the man. If people ever looked at the printed word under their eye, the word recreation would be like the word resurrection, the blast of a trumpet. I love that, yeah. So good. I love that comparison to immortality. Mm -hmm. The idea that we're working towards an eternal holiday in heaven. Mm, Yeah. But that we have to build that by enjoying holidays now. Yeah, and that like... And I don't think we're going to go into it th- that much in this episode, but that hint of the suggestion of a double-edged sword, mm. that, like, you can do holidays badly, which is what so much of the book is about, that, like, sustaining the good feeling or the the charity that's needed to do this genuinely, which has the restorative effect. Um, I think one of the most moving bits in the book is that the el- eldest son... So there's three children. There's Mary, who's the eldest. She's 20. Then there's Dick, who's 17, and he's just started in the workplace. He's left school. And then there's the youngest, Ernie, who's 10. Dick, who has just left school, has started at work. And, you know, his dad had helped get him the spot. And, his he, you know, his father was so proud of it. And he's gone to this job and found it quite lacking. And knows that he's kind of above it and has this real crisis of how to feel about that and a feeling of disloyalty to his father and like he's um, not being duly respectful of the gift that he's been given because he thinks it isn't quite good enough and And he's also in some way struggling with the grief of 
facing into something that wasn't what he expected. Yeah. And it, like a loss of hope. Yeah. In that. Yeah. And and I think you've been really when you when you've talked to me about this book, you've been really good at picking up on the way in which there's a sense of that very British, like you said, privacy of like not necessarily talking about feelings, like even that idea of um, the the father not being that sentimental, but that there is a deep sentimentality and a deep feeling that is the undercurrent of this. And even when it doesn't manifest itself in ways of like very expressive or um, doesn't intrude too much into what the people in the family are thinking or feeling, yet there is a recognition of it and there is a space. And I, I, I do think that there is a beautiful balance between a sense of privacy, even within the family, but also deep love and support. And so... Um, Because it says, Mr. Stevens had felt uneasy about Dick ever since he had left school and started work just on a year ago. He had found the boy a first-rate job with Maplethorpe's, the wholesale stationer off Ludgate Hill. He had pulled strings to get the job and was very proud. Dick, too, had seemed delighted at the prospect of taking his place in the world and earning his own money. But after a little while, a change seemed to have taken place in the boy. He had never been a boisterous fellow but was always full of quiet, good fun. And then in the weeks that followed one another into the winter, Mr. Stevens knew that his son was terribly unhappy and was fighting very bravely to keep it hidden. Mm, And, you know, I think there is a huge good in the way that there's a lot more discussion about being open about your mental health and having the family be a place where you can share those struggles and be supported. But there is also something here, which is that they, they're giving him the space to either come to the, them or work it out. And the holiday is where he finally gets the space from the pattern of life and like getting to work every day and all of the things that go on. And it's only when he gets on holidays that he goes for a long walk and has a think about what exactly he is feeling, why he's feeling bad about it, and what are the positive things that he can do for it. And what's lovely about that as well is that he's been waiting for the holiday to do this in. Mm-hmm. It's not just that he's finally on holidays and then finally realizes he can think about it. Yeah. But he's actually been deliberately saying, no, we'll wait till I'm on holidays and have the space to think about it. Yeah. And in some ways he's even learned that from his dad. Like his dad takes a long walk every year and sort mm. of processes his entire year yeah and like fits into place and comes back a refreshed person to his family and dick is learning to do that from his dad yeah it's also beautiful yeah um yeah it says it that what a splendid thing this holiday had done cleared his mind and set his course he would never forget this silent piece of coast and all that it had done for him yeah it's beautiful and i think it's really interesting because i think the book especially for the time it was in also does highlight some of the the negative aspects of this sort of somewhat I guess repressed English experience because especially I think with the mother there's a couple of recurring details with the mother where you just feel so sorry for her because um she can't quite express how she feels like it the book opens with her saying that she always fears the idea that someone might ask if she enjoyed the holiday and that it says she would never have been able to explain she would have shrunk from saying she enjoyed it because the others will be happy it would have sounded noble and silly 
But what she's actually experiencing, she does enjoy their happiness, but she's she personally is actually terrified of the ocean and <laughs> hates going to the sea. Yeah. And also doesn't really enjoy a lot of the things that the rest of them enjoy doing. And on some levels, they never really ask her because they just sort of presume. And it's a delicate balance because she, I don't think she would want to necessarily disrupt the pattern that they've established. But you do kind of, your heart breaks for her a little bit in at some of these moments where you're just kind of like, just why doesn't anyone just ask her what she'd like to do? <laughs> and yet you also then get glimpses of the ways in which they have over the years noticed her and mm. built in things that she really enjoys. Yeah. Like there's this beautiful reference to her evenings alone that they all feel a little bit lousy leaving her after dinner for an hour and it's her favourite hour of the day. Yeah, exactly. They all feel like they're being terribly selfish and she's actually enjoying it. Um, um, and what's more, they've also built in a tradition that gives her a bottle of port every year. Yeah, they, she's going off to buy the groceries at the start of the trip and Mr. Stevens called out quietly, don't forget your port. She hesitated, half smiled and said, shall I? Of course, said Mr. Stevens. It's an awful expense. No, it isn't. You get it. And with a nod, he turned and followed the others down the beach. Mrs. Stevens was swinging her bag almost girlishly as she walked the other way. Some years ago, she had not been very well. The doctor had said that she was a little run down. Her blood was thin and a pick-me-up would do her good. He recommended a bottle of port. And it just talks about her loving that experience of being able to sip the port. And she said, while the others were out upon their evening stroll, she would sit back in the armchair and have her glass, clearing conscience because it was medicine, enjoying it because it was port. (laughs) And also what's really sweet about that is not only uh, her husband remembering and insisting Mm -hmm. that she gets gets it every year because she would never do that for herself. Yeah. But that her son Dick always marks out the bottle for her so that she's got how much she's having every evening so that it always lasts to the last evening Mm -hmm. um, and gets full maximum use. And it's just those careful little moments of attention because it's so easy to find yourself in those little irritations because at the same moment that you're having this this moment of care and attention just uh, shortly before it it talks about them you know they've just arrived and you know presumably because she doesn't actually really get on with this holiday she's not terribly well suited to it there's that feeling in the family of like she's the odd one out and they you have those like moments of family irritation or impatience and she goes they, they turn her they're walking down to the beach and she's behind them and then they look around and she's gone and it, I love it because it's so melodramatic that they all immediately think that she's like drowned or been run over and like they have that moment of panic but they say that in all of them was a growing panic of remorse they had been impatient with her all day they had hurried her bustled her they had not said a word about the sandwiches being nice and then at last when they should have drawn her into the joy of the holiday they had looked at her critically because she was so badly dressed for the sea and almost ignored her letting her walk behind as they had excitedly made for the promenade they had been beastly to her all day and I think that's what is so striking to me about that is the recognition of how easy it is to allow yourself into little patterns of not treating the people you love well Mm, and and it's totally to be expected when you're with 
people all the time or you have that history of both love but also like these are people that you've been around so much that you have this history of like oh this again um you know that they you know they have to mind her when she's on the train because she's just terrified of travel and you know all of those little irritations and yet recognizing that those cumulatively do build up to having behaved badly and the resolution to be better and to think better of her and to keep her more in mind and to have those moments of expressive love that are the very fabric of family life. I was thinking of, again, and it comes shortly after the other bit that I said was my favourite, but when the dad wakes up on the morning of going away, he has this totally charming moment of thinking that he'll he's going to make them all a cup of tea before they wake up and he sort of he jumps out of bed and puts on his slippers and and goes downstairs and makes them all cups of tea and then just such a charming detail that he also says he rehearsed the business of opening the curtains with the dining room curtains as he waited for the kettle to boil and remembered something else he crept up stairs softly as a cat and put in his teeth he wanted to be able to smile at them all it's such a like incredibly small but thoughtful tender moment and you know he goes into his wife and she she could find no words to express what she felt Ernest hadn't brought her up a cup of tea like this for oh ever so long years and years Mrs Stevens sat up and wonderingly sipped the tea it was very hot and rather weak and some of it had slopped into the saucer but well just fancy Ernest thinking of a thing like that and isn't that so much about kind of pulling yourself out of the humdrum every day to remember to have those moments of tenderness and to remember to have those feelings of charity. There's also a line a little bit before this where they're giving the marching orders and one of them is to take the canary across to the neighbour and the neighbour is a little bit wittering and it's a little bit sad. Like you said, she can't afford a holiday so she's sort of living vicariously through their holiday and being a little bit pining and a little bit, you know, just when you want to enjoy your holiday, it kind of brings you back down when you have to talk to someone who's who has so little that they're kind of living through you. And they always feel really guilty at like, being like, we have to go now. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Mary, who's been at the, her dress shop all day, is tired and worn out and she knows she's sort of being, oh, will you do it this year? And she doesn't really want to. But she looks at her her mother and her mother has like a little bit of linen over her hand where she's clearly cut herself making the supper and that moment of remembering her mother's humanity and her mother's hardships and then thinking of like the joy of the holiday to come and being filled with that sense of a bigger openness to love and to charity and then saying okay yeah no of course I'll I'll take the canary that's that's yeah of course I'll do that you know it can be so easy to be so focused on what you're going through that it's easy to take the other members of your household for granted and yeah it's so easy to shirk things and put them onto others going like nah they won't mind yeah um i think particularly with mothers mm, because there's often that sense of deep service that they have to yeah. the family that it's so easy to then just be like yeah well of course of course mom's gonna do that that's what moms do <laughs> and yeah that like those moments of care are just so beautiful and tender yeah, and that it really matters when we notice the little things about each other. Mm-hmm. And we, it doesn't have to come in a way that we say something about it, but that that act of charity steps in instead. Yeah. You know? She doesn't be like, 
She doesn't go off and then make a fuss about her mum having cut her hand. Yeah. She just resolves to serve her and and be more cheerful and be more engaged herself. Yeah, Yeah. and to take that hit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just think it's it's such a, a beautiful book for reminding, like I said, that to me, there's just such a profound dignity in the book of of those small moments and of those small choices. And it really reminds you of that, like, St. Therese, the littlest way of, like, that so much of our resolution to virtue and, you know, religion doesn't actually come into the novel at all, but there is a sense of, like, you know, Christian virtue and moving towards God that is about all of those little moments and the cumulative effect and how easy it is to slip out of them. Yeah, and that with every little action, I'm going to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, Mm. with every little action, we're either making our souls more godly, Mm. more like God or more not like God. Yeah, absolutely. And that the, I think the holiday is such a good encapsulation of this because like we were saying, it's all of these private moments of how like interpersonal experiences among your family are but they're in a weirdly public setting now you're moving from the privacy of your own home which you know is described beautifully in the book as like a refuge into a more public space of you know the boarding house or out on the beach or among other people and I think that's the other thing as well which is that the book is so good at highlighting how that there is almost more charm to it because because of the smallness of it and that they have a sense of generosity that uh, of course holidays are about enjoying yourself and I'm not saying that you should um, have you shouldn't prioritize that when you're planning a holiday but that in the book they have this this sense of loyalty to the woman that they stay with in her boarding house and they try to be above some of the the little inconveniences or how it's not trendy enough or how it's not it's getting shabby and worn out and it's not as as popular a place to stay anymore and there's a real sense again of the dignity of the people involved that they wouldn't call out the the shabbiness of the carpet or that you know this wallpaper was a poor choice or the fact that the electricity doesn't go all the way up the house that you know the it talks about especially the older children they stay obviously in the kind of lesser rooms and as they're getting older they're sort of a the the rooms are sort of getting worse especially as technology expects things to be better you know these rooms have stayed exactly the same um and how they can recognize the kind of, I guess, the, the dinginess or the squalidness of the rooms and yet recognize the dignity of the woman who is still trying to keep up this business and not wanting to let her down and not wanting to comment on whatever it is, the cracked plates or the wash wash basin being, you know, a bit shabby or whatever it is that, yeah. That. Yeah, and they, they've built up this great affection for her over the years that, mm-hmm. because they're always coming and they're always at the same time. And I think she's got like collections of things that they've made mm-hmm. and she takes particular care and attention to details that they like yeah. in return. That it becomes this beautiful mutual relationship of a created routine. Yeah, yeah. And that there is something beautiful in that. To come back to Chesterton and his, Naturally. He, him talking about the romance of thrift and how, 
you know, the whole holiday in the book is this balance between thriftiness and also luxury. Like the, the holiday itself is a luxury. And also now that both Mary and Dick are working, they can contribute to the holiday, which means that they can get like this little beach hut and it's such a such a luxury for them. Or the fact that they love the way that their father always, when they go to the band, the, the brass band playing music, that he buys two programs rather than just one so that they don't have to like huddle around and they can feel like they're proper attendees that they're not just you know going for the cheapest possible option that like there's these tiny luxuries in there and yet at the same time obviously each single penny is counted like you have to measure out the port because there's not going to be any more port or there's not going to be any more ginger beer that like yeah like they've got a vat of ginger beer mm -hmm. they've got one for each week and again they measure it carefully to make sure that it lasts that week there's no sense of oh we'll just buy another one yeah and so it's this beautiful convergence of both thrift and luxury that has a real sense of genuine enjoyment to it. So to quote Chesterton, thrift is the really romantic thing. Economy is more romantic than extravagance. But the thing is true. Economy, properly understood, is the more poetic. Thrift is poetic because it is creative. Waste is unpoetic because it is waste. It is prosaic to throw money away because it is prosaic to throw anything away. It is negative. It is a confession of indifference. That is, a confession of failure. The most prosaic thing about the house is the dustbin. The one great objection to the new fastidious and aesthetic homestead is simply that in such a moral menage, the dustbin must be bigger than the house. If a man could undertake to make use of all the things in his dustbin, he would be a broader genius than Shakespeare. When science began to use byproducts, when science found that colours could be made out of coulter, she made her greatest and perhaps her only claim on the respect of the human soul. Now the aim of the good woman is to use the byproducts, or in other words, to rummage in the dustbin. <laughs> it's wonderful, yeah. And I think it's interesting because... such a hilarious last line though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Women, go rummage in the dustbin. <laughs> but in, in such a wasteful society as our own, and I completely put myself in that category, it is interesting how it is more and more difficult to reclaim that kind of joy. I think the more, as much as we've talked about on this podcast, the the joy in, you know, decorating for events and, you know, creating beautiful spaces and all of those things, that the kind of attitude, which is to just buy, buy, buy and stuff your house full of all kinds of things rather than having any sense of, thrift and I'm sure I think I'm certain we've quoted this quote more than once in this podcast I'm before. sure we have yeah and I think what's also really telling about it is that at least I definitely think this about holidays that you kind of want to go and not have a sense of the responsibility of money mm -hmm. that you're like oh we just want to be free to spend what we want yeah but rather for them part of the beauty in it is in eking maximum enjoyment out of their holiday budget yeah they're not going to blow the budget. No, they can't. They can't. They can't blow the budget. Yeah, but they're going to like eke out the maximum enjoyment from it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting. At one point, the father runs into a client of his business and gets invited to tea at his house. And it's this sort of gaudy monstrosity, and they're so wealthy, and you think that they would be happy. And there's a part of them that's like looking at the amazing bathroom and thinking of the little bathroom that they have. And yet you really get the sense that actually the dignity lies with the Stevenses at that this sort of, you know, extravagance of wealth 
can't buy the beauty of their home life and their family. Yeah, there's this beautiful moment where the son, Dick, recognises that and recognises that he'd rather have his father mm. than this wealthy man. Yeah. like Which is such a freedom from the, like, jealousy that he was... Not quite jealousy that he was starting to feel at the beginning, but feeling like he'd been thrown into a job that he didn't... That he was better than. Yeah. And he wished his father could give him more. And now he's seeing actually all of the tremendous wealth that his father has given him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that maybe brings us to the Enchanted April, which is that sense of, you know, in the fortnight in September, you have a family that really recognises, even before they go on holiday, although on the holiday they get to kind of re-establish it, but they've always recognised the the love and the bonds that hold them together. Whereas in the Enchanted April, it's very much about people who that has broken down for, that they don't feel like they have this intimacy, that they can't access these rituals of love because they've fallen out of habit and how quickly you can do that and how it can happen in a very mundane, unnoticeable way. And in that book, then they use the the holiday as a springboard, not knowingly. I mean, I think they take the holiday, think, you know, M- Mrs. Wilkins and Mrs. Arbuthnot organise the holiday with the intention that they're just going to enjoy themselves and hopefully that means when they get come back they'll be happier people and in that way be better but they're not actually thinking of the holiday itself in a sort of utilitarian way they're looking to enjoy themselves which i think is a, a positive thing about a holiday you should want to enjoy yourself but that it ends up being so much more restorative than that because in going on this holiday i think the main character mrs wilkins she immediately reasserts this ritual of love that she wants to enact again immediately, that she actually just wants to start loving her husband as quickly as possible and invites him on the holiday. Yeah, it's this hilarious moment where they've travelled to get away from their husbands. Yeah. And the minute she's there, she's like, oh, I'm going to write and invite him. Yeah. <laughs> and her companion's like, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a sense in which she's expanding her heart in this mm. holiday that because she's been freed from we've been talking about the humdrum she's been freed from the humdrum burdens of her life mm-hmm. and is able to just relish the beauty of the place that they've gone to she grows in virtue so her companion who helped find the house and plan the holiday is um mrs arbuthnot and it says that the extraordinary quickness with which, hour by hour, under her very eyes, Lottie had become more selfless, disconcerted her. She was turning into something surprisingly like a saint. Here she was now, being affectionate about Mellish. Mellish, who, only that morning, while they had hung their feet in the sea, had seemed a mere iridescence. Lottie had told her, a thing of gauze. That was only this morning, and by the time they had had lunch, Lottie had developed so far as to have got him solid enough again to write to him, and to write at length. And now, a few minutes later, she was announcing that he had every reason to be angry with her, and hurt. And she herself had been, the language was unusual, but it did express real penitence, a mean dog. I think there's something in that, like, space to recognise your own actions as well. That she's stepping back from who she was yep. in that situation and be able to see her own faults. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's so interesting because you have that with 
Rose or Mrs. Arbuthnot, which <laughs> I think which I can't pronounce. <laughs> we're going to stick with Rose, but that her and then all the other people that they've. So if you if you don't remember from our last episode, uh, the story is about um, Lottie and Rose finding an advertisement for this this essentially Italian castle um, and that finding that it's more affordable than they think, but they still need other women to go with them. So there's, I think, three two or three other women on the, the trip. Two women. Two women. Yeah. Um, and, you know... It all comes down to money again. <laughs> exactly. And they're strangers and they're... I mean, actually, all of them are strangers, but they, they end up on this holiday together. And I remember when I was reading it, or I was actually listening to the audiobook, and I remember sending or calling you, Phoebe, when I was in the car, mm-hmm. to be like, these people are just annoying me so much. Because essentially... Um, Lottie is on the holiday and she immediately enters into the spirit of it like we've just seen there but everyone else takes a lot longer and they bring all of this petty baggage with them and it really struck me about how how that sense of self almost the self-preservation of your own interests and how yeah that sense of selfishness really diminishes their ability to enjoy the holiday so you know Lottie and Rose are looking forward to getting the place ready for everyone and it turns out that the other two have arrived early and for they, selfish reasons for selfish reasons and the, and they've picked the best bedrooms and they've co-opted one of them has co-opted one of the sitting rooms for her own purposes and it's this grasping this like selfishness of like well I want to protect my happiness on this is because this is my holiday and I'm going to block out the other people I have to be involved with in order to make sure that I enjoy myself. And of course, what ends up happening is, is that the true enjoyment comes when you're actually able to let go of that and enter into the community and the charity and the love that's being offered around you. And I think that's so telling because that is the exact opposite of the fortnight in September, where there is a sense of deep, keen awareness and they don't get it right all the time, but the deep, keen awareness of how will my actions impact the other people on this holiday? How can I help with the overall experience of this holiday? Or like like the older children have like not complaining about having dingy rooms in favour of creating that sp- spirit of excitement and enjoyment. And it's exactly the opposite of saying, well, I want the best bedroom for this and I want my sitting room for this and I want my space and I'm going to block off this door so that nobody can come through. And I'm going to, you know, and, I, I, and I'm not even going to be ashamed of it. Like, of course, I have a right to do this. And even though these two other women um, have actually organized all of this and just asked me to join, I'm still going to say that this is my holiday and I deserve to to potentially, as it happens, it doesn't work because Lottie is so overflowing with love that she just doesn't care she just says I'm in heaven and I want to share it with people and I don't care what bedroom I have and I she has the ability to see to experience the enjoyment even amidst this kind of grasping and then Rose kind of follows her afterwards but that ultimately you know they could have expected to diminish Lottie and Rose's experience of the holiday yeah and they come so close like Mm -hmm. Rose says it's really dreadful this is when um Mrs Fisher and the other lady have arrived early and yeah, they were looking forward to putting flowers out for them and mm-hmm. setting everything up. And she says, there's nobody left to get anything ready for now. I feel thwarted. I feel as if the bread had been taken out of my mouth just when I was going to be happy swallowing it. Mm. There was a curious air about Mrs. Fisher, thought Rose, 
of being in possession, and if she herself had not been so happy, she would perhaps have minded. Lottie noticed it too, but it only made her discursive brain think of cuckoos. She would no doubt have immediately have begun to talk of cuckoos incoherently, unrestrainably and deplorably, if she had been in the condition of nerves and shyness that she was the last time she saw Mrs Fisher. But happiness had done away with shyness. She was very serene, she could control her conversation. She did not have horrified to listen to herself saying things that she had no idea of saying when she began. She was quite at her ease and completely natural. The disappointment of not going to be able to prepare a welcome for Mrs Fisher had evaporated at once, for it was impossible to go on being disappointed in heaven. Mm. I love how, yeah, we see it so immediately with her that in England she was this really nervy, edgy, fidgety woman. And the minute she gets there, she's just released from that burden. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the others follow, but slowly. Yeah. Um, And then she later says to Rose, when Rose is complaining about Mrs. Fisher being possessive about it, and she said, Rose says, it's rather silly that Mrs. Fisher should behave as if it belongs to her. What is rather silly, said Lottie with much serenity, is to mind. I can't see the least point in being in authority at the price of one's liberty. Mm. And that's what's so actually kind of interesting about these holidays is that sense of liberty that comes from being within a, a well-ordered family. Mm-hmm. That, And that's what Lottie in this immediately tries to re-establish, which is that she invites her husband and eventually other people come as well. I won't spoil too much, but that like, yeah, that she's actually she was trying to subvert the relationship that she had in her marriage. And that doesn't mean that she could have never gone off by herself, but she knows that she was doing it incorrectly. And that's what that line about being a mean dog, because what ends up happening is um, she organizes this trip to Italy secretly. And then it turns out her husband had actually been planning to organize a trip to Italy with the two of them. And she has to kind of disappoint him. But that, you know, it works out because she wasn't in the place she wouldn't have enjoyed it if she had just been handed it uh, from her husband because she was at odds with him and, and like having a struggle with this re- relationship. So it's not about saying that she should never have gone off on her own, but that it came out of a lack of charity and a, and a, a kind of breakdown in their relationship and that she's actually trying to reassert it and rebuild those those bonds that are correct and give her the freedom of a, that is only accessible in a truly good family life. Yeah, and this whole experience of the holiday gives them all that chance to like re-establish right relationships mm. with people around them. Yeah, and again, we'll come back to Chesterton because again, he speaks so beautifully about family, but he says, the family is the test of freedom because the family is the only thing that the free man makes for himself and by himself. Mm. And he talks about that, you know, when you go out into the world, that it is actually that space that has a rigid discipline and a routine that you have to look the same as everyone else and act relatively the same as everyone else and be part of this bigger community. And it's only when you're actually at home that you can have the freedom where he says that it is obvious that a hundred clerks in a bank or a hundred waitresses in a tea shop are more regimented and under rule than the same individuals when each has gone back to his or her own dwelling or lodging, hung about with his or her favourite pictures or fragrant with his or her favourite cheap cigarettes. And that sense of that actually there's 
a wildness to domesticity that, you know, it's the only place that you can actually do totally topsy-turvy things because you have the confidence of the space being yours and the family being yours. And that, yeah, the holiday is also an extension of that. Yeah, and I think that's also what's gotten wrong in Rose and Lottie's relationships with their husbands Mm -hmm. is they don't have that Mm -hmm. domestic freedom. Yeah. And it's only by getting a space where they have no domestic responsibilities at all Mm -hmm. that they're able to look at that and work their way free of it. Mm, Exactly, yeah. I love it. Great. So, you know, I hope that encourages you. I hope you had a good holiday this summer. I will point out that both books that we're talking about uh, have holidays in times that aren't strictly summer months. So you're not stuck to going on holidays in summer. You know, you could do April, you can do September, you can do any time of the year, really. We're doing October. (laughs) We're doing October. So yeah, there's plenty, plenty of space for that. But I do hope that the summer did allow you for some to experience some of what we're talking about here. And yeah, just that it's, um, yeah, I feel like it's so easy to take holidays as just like, oh yeah, you go on holiday and you enjoy it. But these books really helped me recontextualize what that means and what a family holiday means and like the, the burdens and the baggage, but also the great deep joy and dignity that comes from that as well. And also the joy in having a holiday where you do very little mm. or where you do stuff and then have breaks and then do stuff. Yeah. That not everything is about cramming in a lot of things to do to tell people at home about. Yeah. And it's interesting because both books come from a time, a similar era, both of them, uh, but that they, that holidays have a very different space in their, their heads as like, and we're very lucky, I'm sure other people don't have this, but I do feel like international travel is a lot more common. Mm. Going on holiday is a lot more expected for people from all kinds of backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, whereas, yeah, it feels like, you know, in, in the Enchanted April, they go on a very kind of crazy, extravagant looking holiday. But that is the point that it's almost like, what What you mean you can go to a, an Italian castle and like not have heaps and heaps of money if we just organize this kind of carefully, you know? Um, so the idea that even in thrift, you could go and do something crazy. So it's like, that or the the kind of unique beauty of also having the ritual of this smaller kind of holiday that is special and luxurious to you as well. Yeah, and then also how we can bring that back into our home lives Mm. and paint days red. Yeah, absolutely. That's a beautiful uh, note to leave this on. So I think that is our episode for this week. We have our usual question, which comes at the end. Uh, Phoebe, what are you enjoying at the moment? I think I'm going to say the Evangelium UK conference that we went to, but it was a lot of fun, some really, really interesting speakers and some lovely new people. Absolutely, yeah. We had a fantastic time. That was a lot of fun. I'm going to say um, over the last couple of months, I've been attending open mics. Mainly uh, our friend Matthias, who has been on this podcast before, has been organizing a musical open mic, uh, which I have found so invigorating and has really... uh, reintroduced me to a love of music but also my our friend Jacob brought me to a poetry open mic this week and I got to read a poem and it's just something that I feel like was not part of the landscape of my routine at all and now feels like something that's quite um, a prominent part and I think it's a beautiful thing and I would really encourage anyone who's sort of creatively inclined to look for those avenues to come together even with strangers and to actually 
create whether it's music or I don't know like painting classes or things like that like I think a lot lot of the time especially if you're not particularly sporty our hobbies can become insular and things that you do in private Mm. and actually having spaces where you can bring them to a more public even in a very amateur way a public space is really positive and especially the music has been very positive for me. I think I did mention this in the episodes just before the summer, but um, it inspired me to go and I got myself a um, a piano, a, a digital <laughs> piano for the flat. I've been thinking about it for years and I finally bit the bullet and said it's going to happen this year and I put some money aside and did it. But I talked you into it. <laughs> Phoebe talked me into it. And it was one of those things where I feel like I was so nervous that I would spend this money and then not use it. And now my biggest problem is is that I sit down at the piano and I neglect to do anything else. <laughs> if ever I go out for an evening, I come back three hours later and she's still playing piano. Yep. <laughs> I will easily forget to cook myself dinner. I, you know, I will have a list of like chores that need to be done during my lunchtime at work. And instead I just play piano. Like it genuinely is almost a problem. It's mainly the reason why no episodes have been recorded this summer or very few. (laughs) I mean, it's not, but it kind of is. It kind of is. So I, I would just really recommend if for anyone who's kind of interested in those things to see if there's anything like that or even to start something like that. I've just been amazed. I didn't know it was something lacking in my life and I just think it's been a really positive change. So that's what I've been enjoying at the moment thank you so much for listening thank you for coming back after the summer Um, we will look forward to having another episode for you very soon you can follow us on instagram at risking enchantment podcast you can find me at seeking watson on instagram and on twitter or x or whatever it's called (laughs) i don't spend a lot of time there anymore but i can be found there and uh you can of course also find um our mailing list on my website rachelsherlock.com where you can also reach out i had some really beautiful messages over the summer so just thank you so much to the people who've reached out i can't tell you how encouraging and how generous that is of you to reach out and say your very kind words about the podcast so thank you very much and we will look forward to talking to you again soon goodbye This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.